0: It is time for Must Read Korean Book. Joining us today is Sarah Kwan. Sarah is a freelance interpreter based in Seoul. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Hi, Jimmy. Hey, everyone. How have you been?
1: I've been very good. Mm-hmm. I finally got through with that cold, and mm-hmm. so I am like 100% back to normal. Mm-hmm. Ooh, you're a survivor. <laughs> <laughs> so I very
0: much enjoyed um, the the last book that you introduced for us um, when you were here, which was The Wide and Superficial Knowledge for Intellectual Conversation by Che Yes.
1: And
0: that was Volume 1, right? Mm-hmm, and you've mm-hmm. brought in Volume 2
1: this week. Yes, uh, because I enjoyed it very thoroughly myself. Mm-hmm. And I do think that the two series altogether will be much more complete. Mm-hmm. And so the first book was about history, economics, politics, sociology, and ethics. Mm-hmm. And the second book is more um, about philosophy, science, art, and religion, and the mystical. Mm-hmm. So the two volumes are divided by topics, yeah, so mm-hmm. so it's more, the first book is about the practical, more physical world, mm-hmm. and maybe the second book is more about the metaphysical world, mm. or maybe a quest to find truth, but mm-hmm. by various different kind of versions. Right,
0: right. Well, many of us devote a great deal of our lives to the pursuit of truth, whether it's uh, tomorrow's weather, like an accurate prediction of tomorrow's weather, or a conspiracy theory. So I think it's nice to have a book that shows you how the pursuit of truth is done
1: yeah, um, I was always very interested in this kind of, um, topics because I was one of those weird kids that would, you know, just daydream all the time and uh-huh. ask uncomfortable questions uh-huh. during ethics class or oh, like, you know, okay. um, during church, um, Sunday sessions. Uh-huh. So around the age of 12, 13, and even until middle school, I always kind of like thought about the reason of existence. Why are we on this planet of Earth? Um, what's uh-huh. the purpose of life?
0: Right, right. So, um, let us begin with an excerpt from the book that explores what truth is.
1: It's hard to define what truth is. The debate about what defines the existential truth is still ongoing, even till today. Although man hasn't come to an agreed answer of what truth is, we can all agree That mankind has always continued his quest for truth. And that philosophy, science, art, religion, has played an important part in it. So, what is truth? This is the hardest question to answer. When we talk about truth, we imagine something abstract that is absolute, universal, and unchanging but trying to find the truth amongst all these stack piles of so-called truths is like looking for your airport pickup with just a few descriptions that your boss gave you he told you that the buyer to pick up has a dark complexion tall um, some facial hair and is not very handsome not very helpful right You wait at the arrival gate with people swarming out, looking frantically for the buyer. You have your notes. Dark complexion, tall, some facial hair, not good looking. Mankind has never seen truth face to face, but knows the characteristics of truth. Absolute, universal, unchanging. Mankind has been waiting for truth all for all history. We are the employee that is staring at the gate where a myriad of similar candidates are coming in and we are clutching on the note. But what if the characteristics that were given to us by your boss were actually wrong? How do we know that the characteristics about truth is real? At least in this analogy, you know that your information source is your boss. But what about truth? You haven't had a direct line with truth. We have no way to know why these are the characteristics that define truth.
0: So um, in this excerpt, I feel like instead of giving us uh, a way to find truth, it's um, throwing us into this
1: uh, deeper puzzle. (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> and how impossible it
1: is to find truth, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. So, like the introduction, it starts like this, and then you have various, um, you know, versions from religion, um, from philosophy, ethics, um, mystical. So I think it keeps like says like anything can be possible, like any version can be valid. Mm-hmm.
0: And I also thought that that was a very interesting analogy that the author used. Like finding the truth is like picking up someone you don't know. At the airport. What do you make of that analogy?
1: I thought it was kind of funny. And uh-huh. um, at least you can actually tell your boss. Right. If it was the wrong description, you can, like, you know, later on, like, mm-hmm. you, criticize him and tell him, like, what you gave me was not accurate at all. But mm-hmm. you can't call God. You can't, like, you know, text him. Mm-hmm. And so there are various times where I wanted to actually call someone or, like, mm-hmm. you know, criticize someone. or mm-hmm. be like,
0: someone. what do you mean by absolute, universal, and unchanging? <laughs> oh, yeah. Or yeah. like, why cancer and babies or something uh-huh, like that. So. Right, right 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 i feel like the easier way in the in the airport analogy is to hold up a sign and let the person come to you so wouldn't it be nice if we can do that with truth we hold up a sign that says truth on it and we mm-hmm. wait and it comes to us well what if
1: various people come too many people come saying that they're all the truth
0: oh that is interesting
1: Wow. <laughs> Maybe they're all the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: But the book also goes into the history of truth coming to us
1: in various different forms, right? Yes. So, um, you know, as history progresses, uh, we have various um, versions of truth. And so the author, Chae kind of breaks it down.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: during the prehistoric times, ancient man, prehistoric man would uh, look up and worship nature. And during the ancient times, it was much more polytheism or pantheism. Mm-hmm. So and many gods. Yes, many gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, just think about the Egyptians or uh, the Greeks. And right, right. So right. they have many multiple gods. mm mm-hmm. um, the Middle Ages is mo- more monotheism, mm-hmm. so much more like just one, um, like Yahweh. Right. And then during modern times, now that is more about reason. So mm. it's the reaction against the Middle Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. Um during this time there was a collapse uh, against what the Middle Ages stood for mm-hmm. and um, what m- modernity stood for right, there right. were two factors um, largely mm-hmm. so the external factors were World War One and World War Two. Mm-hmm. so you could see how much civilization will bring mm-hmm. that, that is a, there is a downfall to right, advancement right. Mm-hmm. and uh, internal factors were the limitation in theory so like the theories or the philosophies would come up with like theories that say that say, oh, we can't come up with a solution, mm. or there is a limitation to philosophy or right, reason, right. Mm-hmm. so there is no answer. Right. So.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: that that
0: answer that we arrived
1: at that there is no answer is is where we are today. Yeah. So we right, are right. a part of maybe postmodernism, which is mm. the reaction toward reason. So mm-hmm. there is no reason, or there are multiple versions of reason.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think uh, one big part of uh, this process of reacting toward uh, reason was uh, the collapse of the idea of dichotomy. And you have an excerpt related to that as well, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Dichotomy is a very useful tool to organize and simplify this very complicated world. Dichotomy was a strong tool that was popularly used by people during the Middle Ages and modern times. The problem is that... The either-or-or method draws lines and creates a world that one oppresses and discriminates the other and makes peaceful coexistence impossible. For example, our world can be divided into pairs, good and evil, man, women east-west, white-colored, sense-sensibility, rich, rags, beauty and ugliness, etc., But once you distinguish them into two, the two values do not stay equal. But a hierarchy develops. One becomes superior in comparison. And the so-called superior value now is justified to overpower the other. That is what happened in the Middle Ages and modern times. The virtuous, male, western, white, rational Affluent, beautiful, was considered as the norm and was given superiority. The other, um, evil, female, eastern, colored, emotional, poor, ugly, was considered abnormal and inferior and also repressed and excluded from the mainstream. In other words, the white middle classes Christian men ruled the world from the Middle Ages till the modern times. And those that were not were discriminated. Sexism, racism was rampant. And the fact of their characteristics were considered inferior, justifying that the people of these characteristics should be treated inferior. Postmodernism criticizes the middle and modern times in this aspect. This dichotomy brings on violence when, where one value suppresses the other. So postmodernism suggests to get away from this set of thinking. Don't see the world as two, but pursue diversity and pluralism that allows different values. Postmodernism, in a way, frees the suppressed values and reinstates the value positioning. As a result, a third dimension of gender was introduced in the dichotomized discourse of only male versus female, madness and craziness also gathered spotlight instead of rational versus emotional. The culture of non-white minorities also gained attention a more complex interpretation of political-economical competing dynamics than white-privileged and black-impression came in. Postmodernism heralds the return of the oppressed and the forgotten. Mm.
0: So in this excerpt, the author is giving us the effect of dichotomy and how it gave... uh, rise to sexism and racism because, like he says, when things are divided into two, the two values of the two sides do not stay equal, but there's a hierarchy mm-hmm. that, that develops. And, and he also says that postmodernism, um, starts to shed light on the things that emerge when you stop
1: looking at things in terms of either or yeah yeah so i've seen this in a lot of like literature or art in the postmodernistic kind of trend mm-hmm. so like avant-garde paintings right. or just like for example gertrude stein which is a poet during this kind of avant-garde or dada kind of dadaism mm-hmm. like a rose is a rose is a rose is a rose uh-huh right so it doesn't make any sense uh-huh. but it's okay it's right, okay right. to not be logical it, and it's entertaining in itself. You see mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. in its aesthetic kind of value.
0: Right, right. It speaks to, to uh, one line from the, um, the excerpt that says, Madness, crazy also gathers spotlight instead of rational versus emotional.
1: Mm-hmm. Like
0: what's wrong with being crazy? Yeah, right. it doesn't have to make sense. Mm-hmm. So let's look at the next
1: excerpt on impressionism. Impressionists try to paint and capture what they saw, really saw in the moment. But to be frank, people cannot see the world as it is. People think they are seeing when they are actually distorting the impression to match what they think as the correct version of reality. For example, there is a white cup in front of us. We only see the cup in three dimensions and hence partially. But we already perceive the cup as a complete white cup in perfect form. We conceptualize the part of the cup we don't see. We reassemble the object according to the concept we know. It is almost impossible to truly just see an object or frame without any preconception, like with the eyes that you have never seen with before. The Impressionists attempted to draw the pure form of the impression and to take out the concept and ideology that we had. The artist is not trying to draw a white cup form, but the lighting and the impression of the cup during that moment with strokes of the brush as quick as possible. Monet was the artist that began and mastered the Impressionism movement. His major works include Impression, Sunset, and The Lilypads. Someone from today would see a Monet and just be amazed at how well the artist captured the exact hues and glare the moment the sun was on the horizon. But people during that time felt uncomfortable by Monet's paintings. They were used to seeing paintings of the classical and romantic era, where sunsets were expressed with a darker paint and with more intricate, delicate strokes. Critics during that time saw Monet's masterpiece as crude and as unfinished.
0: So this excerpt reminds me of a joke that people... Uh, used to make about Monet, which was that um, he had really bad eyesight, which is why he painted all blurrily.
1: Oh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh that's kind of sad.
1: All <laughs> oh, his intention kind of was like, misunderstood. Yeah,
0: he couldn't really capture the details because he couldn't see very well. But of course, you know, that's a, that's a joke. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's talk about this idea of preconception that comes
1: up in this excerpt. So... As I stated, um, the Impressionists try to work against that. Mm -hmm. So, like, the kind of too perfect, the pictures with depth was what the romanticism or the classical era was about. Mm -hmm. And this kind of impression or the paintings that the Impressionists were saying were saying, let's not make it perfect. Let's see. Let's try to paint what we really see during that second, that moment. Mm -hmm. But I do believe... It can actually be worked the other way around. Mm -hmm. So not only can painters draw the London fog, the London fog can actually be created by the painters or the writers. And so people will start thinking and seeing the world as um and be affected by what the writer said.
0: Oh, can you uh, tell us more about that idea of understanding the London fog through art and through literature instead of the the thing itself?
1: Yeah, so the London fog was never perceived as a very heavy smog kind of like death kind of perception Mm -hmm. until like Dickens or um, like painters started to paint it like Mm -hmm. William Blake. Right. And they started um, applying meaning to it. Yeah. Right, right. And so now when we think about the London Fog or actually see it, Uh the literature that we've seen or the paintings that we have seen have actually affected of how we perceive the London Fog. Oh, so we see the the London Fog as
0: this sort of um, oppressive metaphor Mm -hmm. for things that we have heard about in literature. So probably (laughs)
1: After seeing the paintings, I see Mm -hmm. so many more colors, like it looks bluish or greenish Uh rather than just a gray fog. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we're nearly out of time. But uh, before you go, let's end with a note that you brought in about um, about Wittgenstein's understanding of philosophy
1: that you wanted to share with us. Yeah, I wanted to end with Wittgenstein. And he is like one of the giants in modern philosophy. Mm -hmm. And he said, you should be silent about the things that can't be verbalized. Mm, What does that mean? So things that you should talk about or should be verbalized and those that can't or shouldn't be, it's more about whether you can experience them or sense them with your like physical senses.
0: Oh, okay. So I think it's speaking to, I think what you're saying is that it's speaking to things that cannot be expressed mm-hmm. in words like and there's so beauty. many other senses that, mm-hmm. that we can use to express beauty or feel beauty so it doesn't always have to be words
1: yeah so okay. always be silent listen to others mm-hmm. and don't kind of like negate what other people are saying just right, because right. they're from a different religion or mm-hmm. a different belief
0: right right and there's some things that cannot be defined and we shouldn't try so hard
1: yeah do you it. don't have to try too hard <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much Sarah for coming in today. Thank you very much. Coming up next is David's Bookmark, but first here's Seal Kiss from a Rose. Ba-la-la,